The second reading is from the letter of James, chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. And that's on page 1214 of the Bibles here in the pews. James, chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe believe that there is one God, good, even the demons believe that, and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Thank you very much, Angela, for reading to us. Let's pray with those words uh, still fresh in our minds. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you'd help us not just to listen to the word and be deceived, but to do what it says, to take it to heart, and then to show it in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the themes that we've seen as we've worked through James, uh, one of the themes throughout the letter has been the whole matter of what it means to be a real Christian, a real follower of Christ. Uh, In the passage we looked at last week, James said there that uh, genuine faith is based on and expresses mercy. This week we're still on the topic of what is true, genuine faith, and verse 14 is a good example. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? And each of us is going to have, as we read the letter and in our verses today, that sense that James is putting our faith under the microscope to see if it's real or counterfeit. I must admit that when I get to the checkout in a shop and I hand over a 20-pound note or something and the shop assistant holds it up to the light uh, to check the watermark and then looks on a list over here to see if it's on a, a forgery list, I'm always slightly miffed in that situation. It's a slightly uncomfortable feeling, isn't it? And we may be feeling a bit like that week by week, reading James, because he's asking us to check if our faith is a forgery. 
Now, we might wonder, why would anyone bother to forge or counterfeit Christian faith? Well, think of it like this. Have you ever heard of anyone forging just a bit of brown paper? No, of course not. It's not worth counterfeiting. But we've all heard of forged banknotes. Money is worth the trouble to forge. And Christian faith is valuable. In fact, a genuine Christian faith is priceless. And that's why there are forgeries. And James is saying regularly there may be a forgery in your life or mine. And nothing matters more than that we should detect that. So look at verse 14 again. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? See that last question there? What's at stake is whether or not we will be saved. Is my faith a faith which will save me on judgment day? And in other words, the stakes are very high. This counterfeit forgery issue matters a great deal. Now, James measures our faith against four people. The first two of them are imaginary characters, and the next two are real historical characters, Abraham and Rahab. The first two are negatives. They are the counterfeits we're being warned against. And the second two are positives, examples for us to imitate. Then after each portrait, there are four summary statements that keep reworking this basic idea. I'll, I'll read them out to you because you can't miss it if I do that. Verse 17, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Verse 20, faith without deeds is useless. Verse 24, a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Second positive one, verse 26, faith without deeds, sorry, the negative one again, faith without deeds is dead. So after each of the four illustrative uh, examples, the summary statement is just punching the point home each time. Well, let's get underway and look at the first example, and he's a, a fictional character, the armchair philanthropist, I'm calling them. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, is, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Luther, one of the Reformation heroes, had problems with this. Uh, he called this letter a right strawy epistle and rejected it from the canon because he claimed it was not apostolic in doctrine. In particular, he thought it contradicted the Apostle Paul and his teaching about justification by faith alone, which we had in the first reading. But that was a misunderstanding of James. In the passage we looked at last week, it was crystal clear there that God's free, undeserved mercy was the operating principle in our acceptance with God and in our living the Christian life. Mercy, not merit. Having argued on that basis in the first half of the chapter, it's obvious, isn't it? James isn't going to undermine that in the next section. There's no conflict between James and Paul. The apparent contradiction arises because Paul and James were wanting to condemn different errors. Paul 
wants to undermine the idea that salvation can be by good works. James wants to undermine the idea that salvation can ever be without good works. Faith by itself, verse 17, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. So his example is the armchair philanthropist who sees a brother Christian in need of food and clothing and calls out, hi there, make sure you keep yourself warm and have plenty to eat. And I'm not meaning that to sound like a a twisted sense of humor. I think James means us to take it as a perfectly well-meaning remark. It's not malicious at all. It just happens to cost nothing and do nothing. It occurs to me that it's worth pondering this after a couple of years which have been hard for most of us, maybe in different ways, but hard, I guess, for most of us. It's easy for our Christian faith to slip until it's all about self-support, reassurance and comfort for me. And when that happens, the next step so easily becomes, Jesus mustn't threaten my comfort zones. And if something might cost me in time and energy and resources and reputation, well, in that situation, I'll just confine myself to words. Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well-fed. I'll pray for you. We might put it like that. I wonder what needs we're aware of around us that should be awakening acts of faith in us. Given that some of those around us feel their needs very acutely, uh, stress and anxiety reaching high levels for many of us, our faith will, will seem very hollow if when someone hits crisis point, words alone are all that we have to offer. My faith is for my own comfort. It stands to reason that it won't benefit other people very much. And James is challenging that super spiritual faith because a hollow faith is not a real faith. And it is, of course, unproductive towards others. Well, let's move on to a second example, and I hope we can pick up the pace a bit at this stage. B is for quaking demons. I used to play with my grandmother, racing demons. Well, this is quaking demons. Verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there's one God? Good, even the demons believe that. And shudder, you foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? So there's some imaginary character interrupting James at this point driving a wedge in the conversation between faith and deeds. And James does not allow that. We cannot kid ourselves that some of us have the gift of being very orthodox in our beliefs, while others have the gift of being busy doing good things. That is a distinction that the Bible never allows us to make. They belong together. If we imagine a a spectrum where at one end there's somebody who talks like this. I'm not really very orthodox. I've never really sorted out all that complicated stuff you call doctrine. Lots of us don't know or understand that stuff. But I do get involved uh, with loving people. I'm that kind of Christian, they might say. And then at the other end of the spectrum is somebody who says, oh, I'm very precise about what I believe because it's the faith that saves and I want to be sure that I've got it absolutely right. I wonder if that's the spectrum, where you might place yourself on that spectrum. 
the point is that we mustn't allow ourselves to think that way, that some have the gift of faith, the doctrine side, some have the gift of works. A faith that is confined to the mind, mere intellectual assent, is no faith at all. You believe that there's one God, he says, verse 19. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Did you realize that there are theological colleges in hell which are sound and orthodox? James goes for the most distinctive Old Testament creedal statement, God is one, was in their Shema. The devil believes that. Even though it's a creed which points to his own destruction, there aren't two equal forces ruling the world, God is one, the devils believe that, and so it makes them quake in their boots. We regularly say the creed, don't we? Um, We might have said the creed each week since we were able to speak, but that on its own is not real saving faith. It doesn't make me a Christian any more than it makes the devil a Christian. There is such a thing as hellish orthodoxy, an intellectually sound faith which doesn't issue in deeds when rightly those two belong together. So let me revisit what we saw about James and Paul again. They don't disagree. They are simply dealing with different problems. Paul is saying, you can't be saved by your works. James is saying, you can't be saved by your words. And there's no clash between the two. Paul's faith always results in James's works. In fact, we even had that in the Ephesians 2 reading. We've got good works prepared for us in advance to do. So maybe this is an area where we need to take things to heart, uh, this mistake of thinking that faith is mainly for the mind. So every sermon is to be pondered like a philosophical essay. We leave church for Sunday lunch, and every week it's the same menu, barbecue, barbecued sermon, uh, grilling the life out of what we've heard. Failing to see that some passages of Scripture don't really need more discussion. They need action. And the best way to emasculate them or neutralize them is to keep them in the mind and not bring them to bear on our lives. That's not right. Our object in studying the Bible isn't simply to get it right, but so that the Bible can put us right and change us. Or how about Bible studies, if you're in one of the midweek groups? I know not everybody is a a chatterbox like me. I am a talkative person in a Bible study, as my Tuesday afternoon group will tell me. Um, I like to talk, but maybe I shouldn't open my mouth unless I actually apply what I'm saying in a concrete, practical way. Just a little footnote here. A, A hellish orthodoxy... Uh, produces nothing in my relationship with God. The demons are orthodox, but they shudder in fear when they contemplate God. And simply being orthodox will never yield the warmth of relationship which you and I are meant to enjoy with God. And maybe that's a clue for someone as to why their relationship with God has gone cold. It's because your discipleship has stayed in the mind, perhaps, isn't being worked through into your life. We don't get to heaven by paying God creedal compliments. 
We get there by placing our lives in his hands for him to change them as he chooses. Well, there are the two negative examples. Let's move on to a, a positive one, a real historical figure, the founding father, Abraham. And I'm just heading this one, Abraham, friend of God. Verse 21, wasn't our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. So Abraham's whole biography demonstrates the principle that a genuine faith impacts your life as he crisscrossed the Middle East in response to his faith. But James takes us to the greatest test of all his life, where, remember, after waiting for a quarter of a century, finally, as a 90-year-old, Abraham has a son. Here's the son through whom all God's promises are going to be fulfilled. And God asks Abraham, a little later on, to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah. So this little guy is the focus of all his father's longings. Abraham's whole life has been lived with this precious little boy in mind, and now he has to give him up. And it's a shocking thing to us as we read it when God says to Abraham, you're to sacrifice Isaac. But I suppose it's another way of God asking him, Abraham, is it really me you love, or is it Isaac? A genuine faith obeys God, even when I must put God over something very precious, even if that precious thing is something good, something God-given. And faith will, at some point, inevitably challenge all of our priorities in different ways like that. Do we love Jesus above everything? If at some point he took away something very precious to me, would I still love him and obey him? Well, that principle had been settled long, long ago in Abraham's life, long before the great test came. There's a quote in James chapter 2 from Genesis, which says, Abraham believed God and was considered righteous. That came in, in Genesis chapter 15, long before Isaac was born. Abraham just had a promise at that stage. He didn't have a son. And that says the Bible, was when he was justified before the decisive act of obedience to God. That only happens in Genesis chapter 22. And James knew that. He knew his Bible chronology. He knew the time span of Abraham's life. He isn't saying that Abraham's obedience is what justified him. No, in Genesis 15, we are told that Abraham trusted God. And in Genesis 22 we see that Abraham trusted God. He was a friend with God before the test, and then when the chips were down later, that friendship showed. And it is in the test of obedience, whenever that comes to us, that we'll see whether our faith is a real one or not. One preacher put it like this, our faith must rewrite our lives, or our lives will rewrite our faith and we'll end up 
changing what we believe to fit with how we want to live. There's no genuine belief up here which doesn't affect what we do with our lives, what we do with our money, our sexuality, our ambitions, our loves, whatever. And maybe, therefore, at some point in the quiet today, we ought to all lay our Isaacs, whatever they are, on the altar, because faith must rewrite our lives. Or our lives will rewrite our faith, and we'll miss out on the wonder of friendship with God. Abraham believed and acted, real faith. That's the mark of friendship with God. On to a final example of genuine faith, once again from history, but a, a very different character from Abraham. This time it is Rahab, and James traces the outworking of her faith to her relationship with other people. So I'm saying for a heading this one, Rahab, friend of God's people. This is verse 25. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Just to refresh your memory on the story from the book of Joshua, this episode happens when the people entered the promised land after their wilderness wanderings. They're camped by the Jordan. They're not far from the walled city of Jericho. And all they have to go on at that stage is a promise from God that he will give them the land. Then they send spies into Jericho, and those spies take refuge in a brothel run by Madame Rahab. What does she say to the spies? I know that the Lord has given you the land, which is the same promise of God in a very unlikely place now on the lips of a Gentile prostitute. And how do we know in her case that it was genuine faith? Well, she acted out her faith by saving the lives of the spies at the risk of her own life. She hid the spies, and then she sent the search party off in the wrong direction when they came for her and sent the spies off to safety. So she showed that what she believed. Um, I was remembering watching with Susu on more than one occasion, Band of Brothers, a series of um, episodes of the life of one of the airborne divisions of the American um, paratroopers in the Second World War. When Holland was liberated in World War II, they saw it close up. And the men and women who'd befriended the Nazi invaders after the liberation in Holland, they were, at the very least, ostracized. In fact, they were often killed. You don't lightly befriend the soldiers of a nation that is invading your own nation. Well, that was what Rahab did. And it's the last snapshot of real faith in our chapter. Move it into our own lives. If somebody gets converted from an unbelieving background, real faith means that they switch their allegiances and act, if necessary, against their closest ties. Their associations have to change so that they can throw their lot in with God's people. For Rahab, it meant crossing huge racial and cultural divides and being isolated from her nearest and dearest, I guess. I'm sure that there are people here who've had to switch allegiances like that. They've been isolated to some extent from their family 
by associating with God's people. So when Christian beliefs, frankly, are a bit embarrassing in the culture we're part of today, will you remember Rahab in that situation? Rahab believed and acted, including offering friendship to God's people. Now we've looked negatively at two examples of a faith worse than death, and two positively of a genuine faith. I want to ask as I close, which is yours? There was a cheesy Christian poster when I was a student with a cartoon courtroom scene. And at the top of the poster was the beginning of a question. If you were put on trial for your faith, and then at the bottom in smaller print, the rest of the question, would there be enough evidence to convict you? On the Day of Judgment, God is not going to ask people if they had a saving faith or not. He won't need to. You and I won't need to say anything. Our deeds will be all the evidence God needs to know whether or not our faith is genuine. Let's pray together. We thank you for the wonderful salvation that Jesus has achieved for us. Uh, We thank you that we'll get to uh, feed on that inwardly as we come to communion in a moment. What a wonderful saviour he is. And we thank you that he saves us not just from the penalty of sin, but by his spirit within us uh, from the power of sin as well. We pray for liberation from wrong ways of thinking, wrong ways of uh, living, increasingly in our lives. May what we believe about his salvation really make a difference and show that we are different in our lives. We pray, Father, for that work in us uh, by the power of the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.